Wolf, get away from those sheep. Bollocks. You're listening to the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. Broadcasting from Fort Worth in the great state of Texas. Now, get ready for this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Welcome to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Today, because of course the wolf is too lazy, he didn't show up. And I called him and he said, well, I forgot we were supposed to record today, which is pretty typical of him. But we have in the studio with us Jeremy Claprot and Nathan Hartman. Jeremy Claprot has created a film called Waterboo, and we're going to talk about this film that's coming up. Jeremy, Nathan, glad y'all could be here. Thanks so much for having us. Couldn't be happier to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we go any farther, we need to talk about a little history, because Jeremy Claprot and I have known each other for many, many years as, as we were kids growing up, and... There were two soccer teams in Keller, Texas. There were the Stingers and the Ramblers. And Jeremy was a Rambler and I was a Stinger. So that was a huge rivalry. And most of us weren't even friends because, you know, we we didn't like anybody on the other team. And I just want to, I want the record to state that the Stingers were the better team. Uh, we can stop now. Oh, that, all right. Well, that Podcast that will over. that will do it for this episode of the Wolf and the Shepherd. <laughs> so that that was our shortest episode yet. Now, Jeremy and I go way back, and and we had a lot of fun uh, playing soccer. But Jeremy, why don't you give everybody a little bit about your about your uh, background? Yeah, I was uh, born up north, but grew up in Texas. Went to school in Keller. After graduation, I. Went to the University of North Texas, where I studied radio, television, and film. Graduated from North Texas in 2000. Shortly after that, or immediately after that, really, I started a small video production company and ran that for about three years before my family sucked me back into the the family business. Yeah. You know, it was kind of funny when I was reading a little bit about your background. I went to UNT, and we graduated at the same time. But you and I never ran into each other while we were at UNT, and we were there at the exact same time. But you were on the opposite side of the campus. Well, if you remember... I probably don't. You are still a stinger, and I'm still a rambler. Yeah. So um, maybe we just avoided each other. That's probably true. There's probably a lot to that. (laughs) Yeah. So, so you go to film school and then you get roped back in the family business and, you know, we all understand how that happens. But of course, film, once you go to film school, you had a, a film company, it never kind of gets out of your blood, right? You know, obviously, well, going back to when I was a kid, I always experimented with, you know, photography and filmmaking and, you know, this and that. I always had a passion for it. So that continued like I said, into, into the business after graduating. Well, so. was there like a movie growing up that, you know, you watched that and you said, you know what, I want to go into the movie making business? <laughs> I don't think so. I just like the creative aspect of it. Really just being able to put something together. I mean, it's no different than a painter or a musician. You know, I enjoy putting something together and being able to present it, you know, right. to, to show the work. So, yeah. So the correct answer to that question was Star Wars. Well, you're probably going to be mad at me, but I'm not a big Star Wars uh, fan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
you know, nobody's can, perfect can, except for me. So now it, I can I can tell you the 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 film I've seen probably more than anything else. Uh, you know, my mom would take me down to movies and video there in Keller every weekend, and we would rent Red Dawn. Red Dawn. Yeah. I mean, we paid for that film over and over again. It would have been so much cheaper to just buy your own copy. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, talking about way back in the day, do you remember Perry's? Oh, yes. Yeah. Did you ever rent videos from there? I didn't. Ah. So, Perry's had their own little video section in there and that's oh. where we rented our videos from until movies and videos opened okay so the beautiful part about perry's was it was like handwritten stuff you went up there and you said you know here's my name they literally went into a file folder pulled your file out and wrote down all your videos so my mom would take me in there and she would do her shopping and she'd say hey go pick out a video and you know you can rent that video and it was cheap it was probably like 49 cents or whatever right and they had no clue what was on the shelves so i rented i can't tell you how many videos but the one that always comes to mind is you know it, it's a small store right and you pretty much see everything and there was this new video that was sitting there that i thought well i haven't seen this yet this kind of looks interesting the name of the movie women's penitentiary three <laughs> it was a full-blown porno movie so you know i'm a kid i'm like oh well this looks interesting and my mom's like well what'd you rent i'm like i don't know it's some movie about prisons and women she's like oh okay that's interesting i throw it in the vcr and yeah boom man i mean full-blown porn nice i'll put that in my queue later tonight <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure it's on netflix right now so <laughs> So what we're really here to talk about, though, is Charlie. You know, the Absolutely. subject of your documentary that's called Waterboo. And so tell us about Charlie. Charlie, Charlie's an, uh, he was an incredible individual. I'll, I'll, I'll take a quote from an individual I interviewed. I don't know that you can encapsulate Charlie in one word, one sentence, one paragraph, one page. Charlie has meant a lot. To a lot of people, including myself, a true inspiration. His story is is unbelievable. Without divulging too much from the movie, kind of give us an overview of Charlie and you know what took him into the war, and you know basically what makes his story so interesting. Sure, Charlie went to Van Lu High School, and after graduation. You know, this was uh, 1966 when he graduated, and uh, of course, Vietnam War was going on, and he wasn't going to go to college. And there was a recruiter around that was that was wrangling all these, you know, all these kids. He decided he wasn't going to let her get to him, so he decided to enlist. Uh, shortly after that, he went off to the war. He joined the Marines, and. In 1967, April 21st of 1967, Operation Union started. They were called in for backup, and Charlie was dropped in off a, a helicopter there, and not too long after, sustained a gunshot wound to the head. The gentleman serving with him saw him. These are guys I interviewed, and they explained to me, when you see 
someone who's been hit, you can tell if we can help this guy or if we need to move on. They said, when you, when you seen Charlie, you knew he was dead. The guys moved on and fought for another six or seven days before coming back to camp. Also, from what I understand, they come back to camp, they don't, they don't ask, you know, did so-and-so die or what happened to so-and-so. It was just understood that Charlie was dead. And it was that way for 25 years for these guys. They didn't know he was alive. Charlie was uh, air evacuated and ended up surviving. He had a long recovery ahead of him. Um, he was shot in the uh, on the right side of the head, which paralyzed the left side of his body. He worked hard to get back to where he could function, talk, walk, and lived a fruitful life after that. So It's truly amazing. So he was shot in the right side of the head, which paralyzed the left side of his body. What was his rehabilitation like like how long did that take i really don't know nathan you you might have more insight on that i don't okay so but we're talking about it was lengthy yeah but we're talking about the 60s yeah you know we're not talking about modern day medicine here so this has got to be a lengthy recovery first of all it's a miracle he survived absolutely with you know the medical technology we had what is that 60 years ago right so it's a miracle he even survived, but then you're talking about a very lengthy process of him just being able to rehabilitate himself and all that good stuff. So goes through rehabilitation. Does he get discharged, you know, basically right after that? Yeah, and, and also the fact that after he had been shot and after he was in the uh, uh, Lake Charles uh, Hospital up there in Great Lakes, it was, I want to say it was six months Afterwards was whenever they had actually fitting for the fiberglass head uh, as far as uh, basically shell, as far as for his uh, cranium there. So he shot in the head, but it deformed his skull. Correct. So what did they have to do? They they put a piece of fiberglass in there? Yeah, they, they put the fiberglass there and then basically was able to reform as far as to give him the construction of a, of a, a skull. All right, so, so he goes through all of that and then... What happens after that? I mean, he finally gets out of there. He gets through the rehab, gets his skull put back in place with fiberglass. Then what? At some point, he moves to Texas. And this is when I met Charlie. Well, and now before we go any farther, so he made an excellent decision moving to Texas because... Absolutely. Everybody should live in Texas, except for people from California. They need to stay there. But <laughs> Yeah, everyone should live in Texas except for the ones that shouldn't. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's that unwritten rule we have here in yeah. Texas. So so Charlie moves to Texas. At some point, he, he joins a company, a gunite company. It's a subcontractor who my father at the time used for swimming pool construction. Now, how old is Charlie roundabout it, at this time when he moves to Texas? You know, I'm, I'm guessing early 20s. So he was shot in 67. He was 17, 18 years old at that time. And when I met him, it was er, probably early 90s. He was basically running errands, picking up stuff here and there. Um, he was picking up checks. And at the time, dad was running his business out of the house. Dad paid bills every Friday. Subcontractors would stop by, pick up their checks, 
and Charlie Ullman comes to the door and dad gets to know him a little bit and he said well Charlie I, I can't give you a check until you till you come in here and have a beer with me Charlie was a little bit flustered I think he 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 called his boss and said Fred Claprot won't give me my check and he said well why not so he said I have to go in and have a beer with him he said well go in and have a damn beer with him absolutely what's the problem I'm I'm on my way right now to get a check. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So he came in, and and, I mean, they were fast friends, you know. So at the time, like I said, it was probably early 90s. Uh, I'm probably 14, 15. That's when I first met him. The guy is just, he didn't know a stranger for longer than 30 seconds. I mean, bigger than life. I mean, you, you wanted to talk to him. You wanted to hang out with him. And as a kid... You know, at 14, 15, man, I thought Charlie was was something else. And when I heard his story, my God, I it blew my mind. Now, it, when you first met him there at 14 or 15, did you hear the story? I mean, when, when he comes into your dad's place and everything right. to collect the check and have a beer, is that when you first heard the story? Well, it, 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 I don't think it was that exact moment, but after that moment, Charlie made sure... He picked up the check from my dad at the very end of the day. That way he could have maybe more than one beer with him. Sure. uh, Shoot some pool, have a good old time. Right. Um, So naturally I was around there and uh, I got to know him pretty well. It wasn't too long before I considered Charlie uh, basically a second dad and a best friend all in one. Almost like I, I know growing up, I had two or three people in my life that were my close friends of my parents that you call uncle sure i mean did did you ever call him uncle charlie i mean did was it kind of that i mean that's that's kind of a, a certain thing sure. amongst families you know where you have that family friend that isn't a relative but you call him uncle it, you're basically kind of saying that same thing right yeah very similar i call them some other names at times but <laughs> made, made sure i was far enough away right where he, where he couldn't smack me but. yeah so, you know, he, he comes over, and and this is just like a, that one time, right? But he was coming over repeatedly to pick Absolutely. up these checks from yep. your dad. So I'm guessing over time, you know, you being 14, 15, you kind of keep hearing more of the story, or as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, but you keep picking up on these things, right? You know, it was, it, it was pretty interesting. We knew bits and pieces, you know. You never knew like the entire story, I guess. And so we never really sat down and said, you know, hey, start to finish, here's my story. You you kind of had to put Correct. it together like a puzzle, right? Correct. And it, you know, in a situation like that, it's you don't just walk up to Charlie and uh, or to anyone in that situation and and I mean, I guess you can, but I just kind of got bits and pieces here and there. I never asked, you know, tell me the whole story or I knew what he had been through and to know what kind of man he was after that point. That's all I needed to know. Right. I mean, it, uh, true inspiration. Backing up to that first meeting with your dad, right? And Charlie leaves with the check. Did your dad say anything to you right after that about him? 
that you remember. I mean, I no, know, I know, I, we're talking about a long yeah. time ago, right? But yeah, I'm old, Max. I'm as old as you are. <laughs> okay, you're old too. <laughs> yeah, we're both old. So no, Nathan, I mean, Nathan's not as old as we are. Yeah, <laughs> Na- Nathan's like. 18, maybe 17. Looks like it. He shouldn't even be drinking beer right yeah. now. 47. <laughs> oh, Nathan's really old. He's older than we are, Jeremy. Are you really? Yeah, I'm 47. Yeah, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. He looks younger than both of us. That's kind of sad. Yeah. He must live a very easy life. Yeah, we've had a, a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, stingers. <laughs> that stingers versus ramblers rivalry took like ten years out. Every of us. game, probably at it, least. Exactly. I remember Brian Kalig falling on me at a face-off, and I never forgave him for that. I like Brian Kalig even more now. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. You know, so that trip down your, memory lane. Yeah, but go so, ahead. So to answer your question, there there wasn't a specific moment uh, or time that I can really remember that I learned more about the story. It was just kind of hanging out bits and hearing this and that hearing dad and Charlie talk and just thinking, wow, you know, that's incredible. Right. And that's the way it normally was too. Cause he's the type that if you gleaned his respect as far as from, um, from your actions and how you were, he would kind of like invite you into the circle Kind of thing. Oh, it, uh, it it was more of kind of like a trust thing. It's correct. like, okay, uh, are you trying to hear some horror stories because you're that kind of person, or do you really care about my story? That's correct because you know there was a lot of times like if you were on his bad side, oh, you'd know, but if you're on his good side, you'd also know. Oh, that's good. You know, and, yeah. and there's no there's no uh, uh, shady as far as no gray area, right, on it. No, that makes total sense. At some point, Jeremy, you start filming this stuff. Yes. So, as I mentioned, after college, I started a video production company. I did a lot of smaller projects, school, videos, a few commercials, video transfers, things like that. But I had all the, you know, all the gear, and I've always loved documentary films. And one day, I... I said to myself, I have all this gear in front of me. I love documentary films and I have Charlie Oman in front of me. Get off my butt and do something about it. At that time, which was, you know, that was 2002 when I started traveling with Charlie. So we're talking about a significant amount of time after I met him. So at that time, he was actually a hotshot. So he would he would pick up trailers, haul them across the country. He would pick up cars, haul them across the country. You know, whatever uh, whatever he needed to haul, he would. And so I just hopped in the truck with him. What what an experience. So, um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. I, I can kind of picture a guy like that. Of course, obviously, I never met him. But how did you approach him with, hey, I want to bust out the video camera and start recording you. Yeah, it's always with uh, you know with documentary films um, or filmmaking, it's it's always a challenge gaining trust from your subject. And in this situation, there was none of that because of our relationship. It, it was instant gold the second I hit record. He was all about it. 
He was he was fine with it. He, you know? he was a fan. Yeah. He, he, he was yeah. saying, "Yeah, Jeremy, let's let's go ahead and yeah. do this." Yeah. yeah. There were no hesitation. No. no. No anything like that. That's good. I mean, there might have been times here and there where he's like, "Hey, you don't need to be filming this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that that seems to be the good stuff, right? Yeah. 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 And I said, "Oh, I'm not recording." Right. But you know, yeah. I was pay, rolling pay tape. no attention to the red light yeah. on the front was, of the camera. It's I was broke. rolling tape. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, honestly. From the get-go, I didn't have that barrier, that challenge of gaining trust, of uh, just getting him to open up, to do his normal, you know, his normal routine, his normal thing. So, and and, and honestly, I, I got that throughout the the process of of capturing film, not only with him, but everyone we met, all of his family. All of his friends, you know, I showed up with Charlie. Charlie basically gave them the nod. Hey, this guy's with me. This is this is number two, son. He called me number two, son. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So they instantly welcomed me into their homes. They, you know, when I sat down to interview these folks, I mean, it, it, it took nothing. These people opened up to me. They, you know, they mean, Charlie means so much to these people. They want to tell the story. It was not as difficult as it should have been gotcha. because of that. Yeah. So. Well, and at this point, what, you've known Charlie about 10, 15 years when you kind of right. broke out the camera mm -hmm. and, and said, hey, you know, I went to film school, want to make a film. You know, yeah, you, yeah. you've done some projects in the past, but this was kind of that, you know, here's the film that I really want to make, and Charlie's... I course once again i don't know the guy but i'm almost picturing him saying heck yeah yeah we're yeah. gonna we're gonna do this and we're gonna make it good right yep. uh, totally cool so you're going around you're interviewing the family you're following charlie around or whatever what what were some of those moments that as you were filming all this that you said that's kind of a crazy moment that yeah. I, I can't believe that I just filmed that. I can't believe that somebody just said that. I can't believe that, you know, I just recorded that. What, did that just happen? You know, I, I know in documentary films, mm -hmm. every documentary filmmaker has that, what do you call it, like, like the eureka moment or that aha moment. or Yes, like the aha God, moment. Yeah, or... like it, did, did he just say that? Did that just happen? It, I'm sure you have a few of those, or at least one. Oh, there, there was plenty, to be honest. Yeah, I always refer to it as, as gold, you know. I, oh, man, I, I got gold on tape today. You know, and I'd go back and look at it and just get so excited, you know, and help me really help with my vision on how I want this film to be made and how I want it to be portrayed. You know, I traveled with Charlie to Florida, Alabama, Oregon, Ohio, and everywhere in between. I mean, I, I wish I knew the miles I traveled with him. <laughs> a lot of it, uh, of those aha moments that we're talking about, were usually in interviews. You know, I interviewed two of the gentlemen that served with him. And those, both of those interviews were absolutely eye-opening and mind-blowing. Um, I learned a lot about the war, about their relationship, about what kind of conditions, you know, they were really dealing with over there. And these are guys that saw Charlie get hit. These are guys that saw Charlie on the ground 
These are guys that saw Charlie and said, he's dead. These are guys that thought Charlie was dead for 25 years. Those are moments where I was just like, man, I, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, just, just following him around, just, just watching him do certain things. You know, I've seen him do things before, uh, cook or normal, normal things that we all take for granted. And I've seen him do it, you know, time and time again, one handed. But when I got behind the camera, I started to focus in and appreciate it. Maybe even more. He didn't ask for help for anything. I mean, moments like that really, really stuck out to me. One of the fascinating parts, and not to let too much out of the film, uh, the film opens with him going on the one-handed dove hunt. And when I first started watching the film, spoiler alert, I've watched the film. (laughs) We'll get into that here in a little bit. You're special. But when I saw the film, I... I saw this one-handed or one arm. Was it one-handed or one-arm dove hunt? One-arm dove hunt in yeah. only Texas. Yeah, and I said to myself, "Well, he has both of his arms. Why is he on this one-arm dove hunt?" And then I realized, "Oh, well, he's paralyzed on this one side, right?" And I thought, "I think he might shoot better than I do." And I have both arms. Like I, I kind of felt a little bad because I've been dove hunting before. And then when you see him crack off that shotgun with one arm, I'm like, dang, that's that's impressive. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really impressive how well he shoots on that. Yeah, I've I've never seen you shoot, Max, but I'd put money on Charlie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've seen me shoot, and I'd put money on Charlie. <laughs> he's, he, he's going to outshoot me, and I'm I'm not that bad with a gun, but I'm not as good as Charlie. <laughs> and you know, not even meeting the guy. I, you know, when I watch that, I'm like, that's impressive. So you're following Charlie around, and you know, eventually, Dad calls, and Dad says, "Hey." Jeremy, I need you in the family business. And you kind of have to get away from filmmaking. And I'm sure that kind of sucked a little bit. But yeah, you know, you, you got to get in the family business. So you, you put the camera down. And, you know, you have all this footage. But but now, you know in the back of your mind, this is that passion project that you had to do. But now you come do the family business. But in the back of your mind, you know this is swimming around that you have to finish this project, right? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2004, I was approached by my dad and oldest brother to join the family business, and I accepted, um, which meant dissolving the video production business, which not a big deal. I was able to still do you know, creative stuff here and there. About a year later is when, when I kind of stopped, you know, gathering footage of Charlie, you know, got busy with, with the other business, started a family life happens. Right. So these tapes, I had, you know, 20 plus hours of footage on these mini DV tapes that ultimately I ended up putting in a fire safe box and putting it on a shelf in a shelf in the garage and it sat there until until recently so recently being this year correct this year happens what made you dig them out of the box or dig them out of the fire safe deal right so i'll say you know over those years 
you know, what is that? 2005 till 2021. Yeah. We're talking about 16 years. Yeah. I mean, in the back of my mind, it, it always weighed on me, always weighed on me. Um, some days more than others. One, I have all this footage. I've, I've already put in all this work. I need to finish it. Two, I want to finish this for Charlie and everybody who knows Charlie and my ultimate goal to, to share it with, you know, to get as many people out there to meet Charlie as possible through, you know, through the film. So it always weighed on me this year on April 19th, 2021, Charlie passed away. And at that moment, I, you know, really started thinking deep about all this footage I have. You know, I had put together a couple trailers, some teaser videos back in the day. And my initial thought was, you know, I want to, I want to dig those up at least and get those out to the people that knew Charlie, because I think they would really enjoy it. And so I, I did that and it really, really got a great response. I mean, people loved it. You know, I started getting comments like you, you have to finish this. You, you know, you have to finish it. And, and I knew I did. But, that, but it definitely gave me motivation to, to start the process of continuing, picking, right. picking this project back up and continuing. And I, I see Nathan sitting here, like, nodding his head. Like, I'm guessing, Nathan, you were one of the ones that probably saw some of this teaser footage, right? Yeah, I and, sure did. And, and I mean, when Jeremy showed you this footage, like, what was your thoughts on that? Uh, let me just say, as far as from whenever I seen the, the teasers, there had always been like, there can be a movie as far as it was talks about maybe a movie sometime. And it was always the, the unknown because I actually didn't even know that it was Jeremy that had done the, the filming of it. And then at the funeral is whenever Jeremy actually mentioned, he's like, hey, would you mind if I done some filming? And, and I'm thinking, no problem, by all means. So when he started filming, and then next thing you know, you know, we, we said, they like once, because that took place up in Ohio. And then when uh, he, he contacted me as far as, you know, after the funeral service had taken place, and Jeremy said, hey, can we get together as far as to go over, you know, pictures and everything like that? When I told him, like beforehand, what I did is I actually had the, uh, the helmet and when I had mentioned that to him, he was, and next thing you know, he showed up there at the, uh, uh, at the funeral service and right next to where the sign in, uh, was, I had the helmet, uh, actually in a glass case right next to the sign. in. that way you knew while you were there. So to, to see him come forth now with the movie, um, it was, it was so heartwarming. It was just like, wow. It really gave you, it gave you goosebumps, you know, and then to see everything that he had done, it was just like, wow, thank you. you know? And and of course, at, at this time, you didn't even know about the prior footage, right? No, I didn't. And, and so this is just a huge surprise to you. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you go to the funeral, you now are showing some of the family this teaser footage, so to speak, right? You know, you put together like... A trailer or a teaser, whatever you want to call it, what minute, minute and a half, right? You know, some kind of clip like that. And they're sitting there saying, All right, what are you waiting for? You should have had this done yesterday, right? Basically, right? You know, it's funny, I, I have zero patience, 
and it's just funny you know after 20 years when i decided this is going to happen this absolutely consumed me 100 percent. you know i and it's just crazy all the different you know technology and tools we have today that we didn't have back in the day and i ended up editing this on an ipad pro which was thinner than the paperwork i pulled out of that fire safe box right. i mean just it really struck me when i realized that well, yeah, you fast forward yourself from yeah. 03, 04 in all these tapes and you have to have all this where now, you know, you can buy a $200 laptop and edit a video. Right. And I will say it was it, one of the challenges I, I faced was actually transferring the mini DV tapes to digital. How so? So the mini DV media medium can be very finicky. You record it, it's there, and you go to play it back on a camcorder, and it may not play back correctly. You may have, you know, dropouts, very poor footage, and it's it's very concerning. Then you go and play it back on another player, and it may play back fine. That was very challenging. I ended up, you know, a buddy of mine, Chris Connolly, you know, when he heard I was doing this, he's he's been a great friend of mine and a who's also in, in video and film production and very supportive and immediately offered me a, this professional deck, a pro camera to transfer this footage. Neither one of those would play it back properly. Mm. I mean, I was, I was sick. I was nauseous. Well, yeah, you've been storing this up for years, yeah. right? And, and you know, you got gold sitting there and now all of a sudden you can't play it. I mean, that's gotta be extremely frustrating. Yeah. So I borrowed a camcorder, a consumer camcorder from my older brother and that didn't play it. It would play some tapes properly. Some play, some tapes, not very frustrating and very concerning. Um, especially like you said, you know, knowing the footage I have. So and of course, at this time, the camcorder that you recorded it on is long gone. Correct. And there's, there's and you're probably saying to yourself, if I just had that camcorder, maybe it would transfer right. perfectly, right? Right. But that camcorder's gone. Yeah. What I ended up doing was calling a handful of video transfer companies in the area, probably about five of them. And there was only one that I really felt comfortable with. And he, he really took the time to talk to me about what I was doing why I was concerned, basically invited me in. I bring this, you know, suitcase full of tapes into the his studio and all this while in the back of my head, I'm just sick. I'm like, I don't want to leave these tapes with anybody. I mean, I trust this guy, but is this place going to burn down? Right. Is someone, you know, so I'm sitting there talking to him and we discuss a few things. I'm explaining the issues I'm having and... Before I leave, I, I say, man, do you have something we can just test it out on? I'm really curious if we can get this stuff to play right. He said, yeah, let me go grab this camcorder I have. It it does really well with most tapes, especially troubled tapes. We popped that tape in and played perfectly. Wow. Yeah. I'm I mean, guessing it wasn't you know, the same one you recorded on. No, absolutely not. In fact, it was a, a small little handheld you know, consumer camera. I have a sense of relief, but also I still have that concern with, I don't want to leave these tapes with anybody. Right. You know, so. Yeah, that's your only copy. 
you, you exactly. know, you don't have backups of any of this. Exactly. Right. So popped in my head. I said, Hey man, let's make a deal. Instead of you transferring all this, let me rent that camera camcorder from you. I'll bring it back when I'm done. Give me the weekend. It's a win-win for everybody. You, you know, you don't have to transfer it. I have it all in my possession and we made a deal and I took it home and started transferring. So, so you transferred from that camcorder to digital? Yes, straight into the MacBook. And from there, was able to, you know, put it on a, a hard drive and then send it over to my iPad Pro. So now you're going through all this old video that you transferred over. And is it a one-for-one one deal? I mean, you're you're watching this footage as it transfers over. You At- know, maybe you're going in the kitchen and you know microwaving a pizza or something like that but you're watching all this as it's going on were you watching me do this a little bit because yeah (laughs) i did go microwave a pizza yeah so (laughs) so yes it was it 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 was one-to-one i mean we're 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 transferring real time but i i really enjoyed it you know it it, you know 20 plus hours but i'm watching footage that i had forgotten i had or oh my god yeah i do remember that aha moment that we talked about and 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 as you're doing this are you are you not having those moments that and yes the aha moments but now you're saying oh i definitely have to get this done now it like that that fire that was in you before when you were actually recording kind of lights up a little bit more and said i remember how cool this was and now Man, I really have to do this. Absolutely. That was gas on the fire. I mean, I was, it was all I could think about. You know, I went through this footage and watching all this stuff. It was, I mean, it was awesome. But I did have some concerns. I, I had some roadblocks. One thing I never did was interview Charlie. That made me sick to my stomach. You know, it was one of those things where I always put off, put off, oh, I'll do that later you know, maybe kind of nervous. I don't, I don't know how to ask these questions to Charlie, you know, that kind of thing. And in digging through these tapes, I pull out a crumpled up piece of paper with all these questions ready to ask Charlie. And I just looked at that and thought, man, I can't believe I didn't do that. So in my mind, as a, as a filmmaker, as an editor, I'm thinking I have gaps in this story, pretty huge gaps. So I start you know, brainstorming. I'm like, uh, you know, I can use narrative. I can maybe use other interviews, uh, you know, create, you know, go interview more people to get more information. And it, it really weighed on me. And, you know, I was laying in bed one night, just scouring the internet. You know, I was looking up anything I could find. You know, I was, I read several obituaries on Charlie, this and that different types of searches and Finally, something pops up in front of me, and it's an interview with Charlie. Voices of Veterans, a Texas organization, has been collecting interviews with veterans who live in Texas to compile all of this, you know, all of this history to document it. And I sat there. It was a 30-minute interview, and I listened to this thing, and I thought, man, Charlie just, it was almost like Charlie just handed this to me, said, yeah, you screwed up, little buddy. <laughs> right. But here you go. Yeah, I fixed it for you. Yeah, yeah. 
And I thought, I mean, I, I can't tell you how ecstatic I was to have that interview. It closed so many gaps. It, it helped to complete complete the film, for sure. Um, in addition to that, they had referred to another individual that the Voices of Veterans had interviewed, who also served, who served with Charlie. And that's how they, they, that's how they learned about Charlie. So I went and listened to his interview, and I was able to pull some gold off of that as well so when you're going through all this and and you find that interview you know when you were traveling around with charlie you probably had those conversations you know when when you're driving around and he's telling you stuff did did you ever regret the fact that man i should have had the camera rolling on some of this stuff oh absolutely i mean sure we had candid conversations obviously when the camera run, you know, wasn't rolling. I tried to keep it rolling as much as possible, but you know, I, I was poor back then. Yeah. Um, or or was, or the battery's dead, I, I and mean, you're like, hey, yeah. hey, I've got the battery charging over here, and then all of a sudden he tells you this story, and you're like, why are you telling me this right now? You know, the battery yeah. is over there on the charger. Yeah. You got to wait until I have that red light in front of you. Yeah, and, and of course that changes the dynamic of it. I mean you put a camera in someone's face, it's typically a little bit different. Um, I try to be low key and, you know, have the camera rolling when maybe they don't think I have it rolling, you know? So that's how you get the good stuff. But yeah, I mean, you know, so those times, yes. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, I wish I was rolling tape, but also more importantly, I was having a a candid conversation with, with Charlie, you know, and that was more important to me than, saying, hey, man, we need to set this up and, and record this interview. So Right. So now you've got all this footage together. You, you rented the camcorder. You got it all dumped down. Now you've edited this movie together, and you finish it. What entered your mind right after you finished it? You, you kind of watched your so-called final cut, right? It, what was the first thing that you thought when you watched that final cut? So... The the first cut was a was definitely a rough cut. Um, there were there were a lot of technical aspects of it that I needed to fix. But I will never forget that moment. It was it was two o'clock in the morning. Um, you know I'm sitting in the living room there, and the rough cut is done. I'm sitting there thinking, holy cow! You know it just kind of all came down on me. I I'm sitting here going, this is twenty years, and I'm it's finished. I mean, not finished, finished, but you know, the rough cut is finished and I am, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It was, it was emotional. It was. Were you by yourself when you watched the final cut? I was. I mean, it was two in the morning. I'm guessing the old lady's asleep and everything saying, Jeremy, when are you coming to bed? (laughs) Oh, you're working on the movie. Never mind. I'm going to go in and watch the real housewives or whatever and fall asleep. Speaking of, Thank you, Rachel. She put up with a yeah. lot, especially during this time. Because, I, I mean, I'm telling you, every moment I had, I was, you know, 30 minutes here, a couple hours there, drop the kids off at soccer, sit there in my truck and edit. You know, I, I, I had to get it done. Did you feel like you were under a time constraint? Like, it, you know, after Charlie's funeral, did you feel like, I only have like this little amount of time, even though you didn't, but did you kind of feel like I got to get this out there as soon as possible? So, so you felt that 
kind of weight on your shoulders, so to speak, that I got to get this done faster than you originally planned? Absolutely. When I went to Charlie's funeral, I saw a lot of friends, I can call them friends now, uh, that I interviewed 17, 18, 19 years ago, and it was amazing seeing them again. I also got word that some of the some of the people I met during the travels had passed. Some of the individuals I interviewed had passed. And so I, I definitely had a sense of urgency that I want these people who love and cherish Charlie to be able to see this film. So I did have that. Even so, I'm like I said, I, I'm a when I when I'm a one track mind. So when I'm ready to do something, that is all I think about. And that's, it consumed me. Right. So Nathan, as part of, you know, Charlie's family, was there kind of any pressure, you know, on Jeremy to say, hey, we want to see this? No. No, not at all. But, But you were, maybe impatient isn't the right word, but you were really wanting to see this. Right. Well, it was one of those things that, like like I said before, that I had seen the clips, but with not knowing who had really ever, uh, as far as the, the history of it, and, like, I didn't know until he had, uh, until Jeremy had let me know that he had actually been doing, like, ride-alongs, you know, and I never knew that there was, like, a film footage of of when Uncle Charlie was, was out uh, doing the dove hunt. You know, right, and, and to do the interviews of my family members and stuff like that, I didn't know. So it wasn't until really whenever he came over to the house after the funeral is whenever he showed me some of the movie clips, and then he he said, "Hey, I'm moving on this," and that's when it was just like, you know, whenever you get it done, you know, I I hope to, you know, I look forward to seeing it. But as far as for uh, from Annie and Mai's aspect, you know, there wasn't any as far as pressure on them. As far as that goes, it would just, we're like, I can't wait to see it. You right. Know, we're excited for him. And because we knew that he was going to do it right. You know, we knew it was, he was going to do it right from the get-go because, you know, just just a giant thank you. Because there's, there's so many people, you know, they're like, man, is there a way as far as to, to tell about Uncle Charlie's story? Because they hear about it and they're like, holy cow. You know, it's just absolutely amazing to hear the, the history of, you know, how long that he was out there in the rice paddy fields. You know? Right, right, and and of course, like you say, your uncle Charlie's story. Could you have picked a better person than Jeremy to tell no, the story? No, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, why is that? It's just, I mean, right person, right time, right, right job, right guy for the job. You yeah. know, and he he nailed it. He literally nailed it out of the park. He crushed it. That's cool. So that's very cool. So, Jeremy, you submitted this film to some film festivals tell us a little bit about submitting a documentary film to film festival so i'm definitely i was out of the game for quite a bit on this you know back in the day when i started filming for this it was hey you have to make a feature film and you know the internet was nothing back then yeah. like it is in its now. infancy yeah and you probably have a stack of America online discs somewhere, <laughs> you know, where it's like, oh, I have 480 free hours of the internet. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which I don't need to use. Yeah. Back then it was, oh, I got to make a feature and I'm going to have to mail these, you know, physical copies to these film festivals. 
which, you know, I, I don't know that they were scarce, but definitely not what they are today. So digging back into it, I reached out to an individual that had just gone through all of this, Brock Cravey, and he helped me quite a bit. He was able to direct me to the right websites to visit, and basically uh, Film Freeway is the gateway to all all film festivals. So once everything was complete, trailer, movie, movie poster, synopsis, press kit, all of that gets put in that website. So in, it's in kind of, Film Freeway. Correct. It's filmfreeway.com. Yeah, I guess I guess you could liken it to uh, uh, LinkedIn for you know for movie makers, for gotcha. actors, directors, and such. So from there, it's just a matter of clicking buttons, hitting Apple Pay, and you're in a festival. So pretty addicting and uh, <laughs> and e- super easy to to enter in these festivals. Uh, my goal was to start with some monthly festivals for some instant feedback. Super anxious to get some feedback, see how these film festivals receive the film. Uh, I should start hearing back this month from about six or eight of them. Next month, a handful. Following month, a couple. And then some of the bigger festivals that are yearly, I won't hear back from until you know, March of next year, that kind of thing. So yeah. now a lot of people really don't understand what a film festival is. So you're submitting this to a film festival and then they show your film, right? So, so what exactly is that big draw for a film festival? I mean, I know as a, a movie liker, right. an aficionado, so to speak, I like watching movies, but I don't make movies. But you see that, oh, winner at the Cannes Film Festival or winner at the Sundance Film Festival. So what exactly is it that happens at these film festivals when your movie's shown? It's definitely, there's a, there's a wide range. Uh, some of these are online only where they have judges, people in the industry that are watching these films in private critiquing and um, deciding you know which ones fit the awards and uh, you know awards are uh, presented at that time um, of the of the actual festival so like online ones they'll they may show films online for a short period of time Uh, in person film festivals uh, obviously you know they're showing them at an an event at a venue and they'll sell tickets and you know the public can buy tickets and go watch these film festivals or oh, these, th- these so, films so regular festivals. guy like me i can actually go to some of these film festivals and see films yeah absolutely so and i know covid last year um really changed yeah put a hamper how, on it yeah it, uh, changed how a lot of these operated a lot of them did go online only but yeah, it's a it's a mix of online and in person. So, and I'm just uh, like I said, just waiting to get some feedback on the ones that I have entered. Yeah, that's cool. So, uh, before we go any farther, 
literally the elephant in the room right now is all of this stuff that we have sitting on the table and we're going to put some pictures on Facebook and Instagram, but I'd kind of like to take a walk around the table, so to speak. And Nathan, you're probably going to have to chime in a little bit about some of the stuff that we have right here because Nathan has brought along a bunch of stuff from Charlie's past and a lot of it's really cool. I mean, we've got beers sitting on the table right now, and quite honestly, it's the most nervous I've ever been of having a beer this close to some of this stuff because I am clumsy, and I I keep just very gently trying to set my beer down so I don't spill my beer on any of this stuff. But, Nathan, if you can kind of walk us through some of this stuff and quite honestly... The one thing I want to start with is this helmet that is sitting in front of me. And we're going to take a picture and put this on Facebook and everything. But where did you find this helmet? Yep. So, well, uh, first of all, kind of describe the helmet, right? So we, you told me earlier, it there's like a two-piece helmet. And this is kind of the interior of the helmet. So kind of describe that for our uh, visually impaired listeners that you know, aren't going to look on Facebook and everything at these pictures. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically what we're looking at here is it's a, uh, there's a, a term that the military personnel normally give as far as to the old, uh, helmets they had back World War II, Vietnam, uh, time, time frame. It's a, basically it's a two piece, two piece helmet. So okay. you have the exterior and then this one, what you're actually looking at here is the, the, the inner liner, the interior, Okay, and what had kind of taken place was so after um, he had basically he after he had gotten off of the uh, helicopter and under fire and all that kind of stuff, what he had actually done was he had actually turned his helmet around, so it was actually what would normally be on your left side was actually moved uh, uh, to now to the right that way because of the way that the the contour of the the helmet is. With him having it on backwards, and he was laying on the ground, and that's he was basically in a fight with what he called John Wayne. So John Wayne was was Uncle Charlie's hero, right? Oh, gotcha. So that's how that kind of came into place. So how I come about finding the helmet was uh, November thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth of last year. My uncle Charlie and, and Brenda they had moved from Texas back up to Ohio. Long story behind that, but. They were kind of in a rush as far as to move. Well, I was uh, going through the uh, uh, out in the garage, and then I mentioned to uh, uh, another gentleman, Sam Hess, that said, "Hey, you mind if we check the house?" And we went back into the back room, and lo and behold, I find the the duffel bag, and I was like, "Oh wow!" And I was like, "What is this?" So I go to open it, and you know, instantly, like whenever you open up, and especially military uh, gear, whenever when you open up something or like a room or something like that, that you can tell the history, you can smell the the you you smell it, you see it, it yes, all that, all all the sensory things yeah, just and that's happen. Exactly. It. So I no more than open that up, and I was like, oh my god, this is the helmet, this is it. Wow. And literally, it gave me goosebumps. 
because that was the first time I'd ever seen it. Not to mention the fact that you know you had like the the uh, the gas his gas mask that he had. Okay. You know, just different gear. His his uh, flight cap that he had from back uh, whenever he was in the the core. You know, to like different pictures as far as in a Ziploc baggie. So, but this one in particular, like literally, I was like, oh my gosh, this is literally what was was there. You know, that is that is crazy. Another thing that's laying right in front of me right now is his Purple Heart. And before we started the podcast, you were talking a little bit about there's two Purple Hearts. You know, for for somebody that didn't serve in the military, it, you just think, oh, you get a Purple Heart or whatever. We opened this up and you said there's two Purple Hearts in here, right? And yes, sir. I've honestly... I've never seen one up this close before, so it's really cool to see. But he's got two in here. Explain what that is. Yeah, so basically, after he had been medevac back to the States and he was up there at uh, Great Lakes Naval Hospital, there was a, a general, which is, this is the, the photo here. So we have a photo uh, It was taken on um, as far as from when he came back. But it's where the... The uh, three-star general was presenting Alcatraz with this uh, right here. So one is one of the uh, the purple hearts is what they technically what they pin on you, and then the other is like the display. Right. Yeah, because one's so much shinier than the yeah. other one, yeah. so you can tell. Yeah, one you kind of leave in the box, and the other yes. one is the <laughs> one that you wear. Yes, sir. So, uh, so what I'm gonna do? I've got a envelope of telegrams so there's a lot of probably millennials that don't know what a telegram is this is basically like emails from way back in the day and you have the actual telegrams that came through so i'm going to hand this envelope to you and i'd like for you to read what's on these telegrams in in your voice here and i know i'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but uh, I mean, it's just cool. Number one to even see a telegram because a lot of people have honestly never even seen a telegram. But it, this is the way that we communicated a long time ago, yeah. and these all have to do with you know your uncle Charlie. So I'd like for you to at the uh, so it, let me back up a little bit. So we we do have the helmet, but before you read the telegrams. We do have the helmet in front of us and everything, and there is literally a bullet hole in the side of this helmet. And I think we probably need to know a little bit about the story of that. You know, you said it was on the wrong way or whatever, but, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at it, and it's it's really kind of surreal to look at it, but kind of tell me a little bit more about that. Sure, so... so uh... After he had gotten off the helicopter, and they were there was you know explosions, RP, you know RPG, all that gunfire, automatic uh, gunfire that's going off all over the place. The guy said that you know even with talking with some of his other uh, members of the Mike Three One, um, they all said it was it was really bad, and Uncle Charlie had basically he was down on the ground and you know with his helmet turned around backwards. And he was in this gunfight with this guy he named John Wayne. So it just so happened it was a machine gunner that he was in this fight with. 
Well, they were going back and forth, back and forth, volleys back and forth. And then it came to a point to where the Uncle Charlie looked up and he, he seen him and it was just like the flash. And come to find out this machine gunner hit Uncle Charlie in the head four times. And as I had mentioned before, as far as with the, the two part uh, helmet, right. the one of those rounds, and you can actually see on the helmet as far as the, the dings from the other ones, as far as the kind of the impact. But one of those rounds was the the ultimate, like shall we say, the golden BB. Right, that was the one that made it made it through and did yeah, the damage. And, and I mean, it's it's just crazy to look at that, yeah. you know, because you know it's sitting here right in front of me, and I'm like, you know, there was there was a guy wearing this that got shot in the head, and it's a foot in front of me. Mm-hmm. It, that's that's surreal. I, I mean, it really is. It's hard to put into words, it, to be quite honest with you, to have something like that sitting right in front of you. Amazing that you brought that along with you. Going into the telegrams, yes, sir. I, I'd, I'd kind of like for you to pull out of the, the envelope there the those telegrams and kind of read those along you know, with the date and, yes, and everything that, that came through. I think it'd be kind of cool for, for you as his nephew to... <laughs> kind of read those. I mean, no offense, Jeremy, but I think it'd be kind of cool for for the nephew to read these telegrams. Now, one question before you read the telegrams: the telegrams went to his parents, right? Yes, sir. Okay, all right. Just want to make sure. Yes, sir. So, so this is something that happened years ago. This is how a you know serviceman who is going through all this. This is how his parents are notified old school telegrams this is a western union telegram dated 25 april 1967 843 a.m from uh, washington dc uh 24th nft mr and mrs john uh, w omen do not phone route one vanley ohio this is to confirm that your son private first class charles l omen usmc was injured 21 April 1967, in the vicinity of Danar, Republic of Vietnam. He sustained a gunshot wound to the head from hostile rifle fire while on an operation. He is pre- uh, present, presently receiving treatment at the station hospital, Da Nang. His condition was critical and prognosis guarded. Your anxiety is realized and you are assured that he is receiving the best of care. You will be kept informed of all significant changes in his condition. His mailing address remains the same. Additional information received this headquarters reveals that the condition of your son is improving. He was changed from critical to serious. He answers questions. However, he is having difficulty with his speech and he is paralyzed on his left side. You are assured that he continues to receive the best of care. His mailing address remains the same. Wallace M. Green, Jr., General, United States Marine Corps, Commandant of the Marine Corps. Can you even imagine receiving a telegram like that, being a parent, and as you're getting to the next one, I mean, wow. That's that's heavy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm... 
That's crazy. I mean, it, you get to the point where you're speechless. So a report uh, was received um, by this headquarters, 28 April 1967, reveals that your son, Private First Class Charles L. Oman, United States Marine Corps, continues to receive treatment at the U.S. Naval Station Hospital, Denain. He is definitely improving. He talks freely now. However, his condition remains serious with his prognosis guarded. His prognosis for return of motor function to the left side is poor. It is contemplated that he will be medically air evacuated to the United States when his condition permits, but the exact evacuation date and hospital destination are unknown at this time. You will be furnished this information when it is available and you will be kept informed of all significant changes in his condition. His mailing address remains the same. Wallace M. Green, Jr., General, United States Marine Corps, Commandant of the Marine Corps. It's almost hard to listen to. I mean, it really is because just thinking about being a parent, receiving that, I don't even know how the military does it now. You know, if it's a email or something like that, but... It, especially something that big, they'll actually send somebody. Yeah, but back then... Back then, yeah. Yeah. We also have, you know, some pictures of Charlie, you know, floating around here. Uh, not not to do with the movie poster, which Jeremy brought along, and we'll get into those in a second. I've got this picture, and kind of ironic, and I guess... You know, it's another reason why maybe we should film some of these podcasts. But this whole time, I've had Charlie staring at me. I mean, it, you, you put this picture of Charlie right there in his, you know, Marine Corps. Yeah, what do they call it? The dress blues or the dress blacks or whatever. I don't know. I'm colorblind. It could be black, could be blue. I, I don't know. He's staring at me like, you better not screw this up. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know who you are, Max, but you better not <laughs> screw it up because I'm going to turn around and I'm going to come down there and I'm going to open a can of whoop-ass on you if you screw this up, right? Exactly, yeah. If, if, <laughs> if you ever got to the point to where you were on his bad side, with his paralyzed hand, he would, he would grab a hold of his middle finger on his paralyzed hand with his good hand and just kind of let you know you're number one. Wiggle the middle yeah, finger. He'll wiggle yeah, wiggle it for you. Yeah, give you the one finger salute. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Those hopefully, for, hopefully he's not doing that to me right now. No. <laughs> he saved those for ones that he really didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You aren't good enough for my good hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, it's beautiful. You know, looking at these pictures and being surrounded by this stuff, I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing. It, it really is. So... Uh, Nathan, walk me through, you know, outside of his, uh, I guess that's his boot camp graduation picture and all that. You do have some pictures laying here in front of me and, uh, you know, we'll post them on Facebook and all that good stuff. So, you know, obviously, you know, we're audio and you can't see these right now, but it, you can be able to see them here in a little bit. We got some pictures here, so so walk me through some of these pictures that you have, yes. you know, right in front of me. So the uh, the service dress uniform that he has here, uh, these are only two that I actually found of Uncle Charlie wearing his service dress uniforms. So you know, it was, it was pretty much a shock whenever I did find them. Then 
the one that you see over there to the left is where he was over there in Vietnam as and his job at the time he was called a uh, cannon cocker so those the guys that my understanding is that those are the ones that are loading the rounds into the the guns into the howitzers so that was him over there in, so uh, so when Vietnam. I look at this picture I say, well, the Marine Corps back then didn't have hats that fit their soldiers. Because I've seen, you know, the movie, and Charlie was a big guy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, this is the biggest hat that we have, so you got to figure out a way to make it fit on your head. Because, you know, Charlie was a big guy, and that hat is almost not fitting his head. Yeah, I mean, he was... He was a big guy, had a big melon, and that's kind of how he got the name of Waterboo. You know, is because he was big, rough, tough. You know, it, and of course, honoring. this 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 <laughs> kind of goes that well. This kind of goes back to the fact that I'm a terrible journalist, right? So I probably should have asked this at the very beginning of the podcast: Why, Jeremy, you're calling this Waterboo, and why everybody called him Waterboo? So it's basically because he's big, rough, tough, ornery, nasty, naughty, you know, just, you know, he, he's not afraid to confront anything or anybody. Yeah, so uh, Waterboo is short for water buffalo. Water buffalo over in Vietnam, they likened Charlie to the water buffalo. He was mean and ornery, and he might even have said he smelt as bad mm-hmm. as a... as a water buffalo or at least that's what they said so why is it when i look at him i think of some kind of famous actor like who is it and and you're laughing already (laughs) i'm looking at him and i'm saying he looks like a famous actor and i can't put my thumb on who it is i know what you're saying bottom line is charlie was a badass and it shows in all of these photos and i think that's what makes you feel that way i got you i don't want to say james dean but he kind of has that james dean kind of feel you know cigarette or cigar whatever it is in his hand he just looks like somebody that you don't want to mess with well charles p omen and the p ain't for purdy (laughs) i know he he liked to put the yeah. The P as the initial for everybody's name, and it ain't for Purdy. <laughs> right. What a good-looking guy and... Hoss of a man. Just a beast. Yeah. You can see that in, in the pictures. It, you know, it's amazing. It really is. And so before we got started, you showed me, and Jeremy and Nathan, you showed me a picture of probably not historically the first selfie, but... <laughs> He did take a picture of himself in the mirror with an old school camera and everything. And no kidding, he's got a cigarette in his hand. And he's like, you know, I I just don't care. Of course, you know, back then everybody smoked. So it, it wasn't that big of a deal. But he was a hoss of a man. I think my leg is probably half the size of his arm. Specifically, that photograph was... I, I, I hadn't seen that photograph until the funeral. Okay, so so describe a little bit about you know the photograph you just handed me that on the back says Mother's Day 1966, but let's be honest, it's kind of a creepy photograph to look at. We got Charlie here, and the back of his head's caved in. When he came back from 
the Great Lakes Naval Hospital. Came back home there during those six months. This is a picture that had been taken, and you can see how that the the side of his head is caved in. Yeah, that's where the skin was just basically protecting his brain. Yeah. I mean, it, in looking at that, you say it's a miracle he survived. Yeah. I mean, it takes a tough dude to be able to survive that. And and the next one is the big scar. Yes, you know, sir. When, when they're fixing it up, like you said, with the fiberglass and everything, got the big scar there, sewing it up. I don't know the dude, but I'm looking at him saying, okay, yeah, I'll turn my head right here so you can take a picture of this so you can see it. It doesn't look like he's too happy about the fact that somebody wants to take this picture, but, you know, here it is. This is from the uh, the dove hunt, the one-armed dove hunt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so we got a picture of that one-armed dove hunt where I know he could outshoot me. And you, Jeremy. Both of us. I won't disagree. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And this is another picture of him shooting. Is that... Like trap shooting or yes, yeah, this is like where he he was shooting handicap on this one. Amazing man, absolutely amazing man. And in Jeremy, by the way, I I'm really glad that you're getting this out. You know that the whole story behind it. You know people need to hear these stories. There's so many unsung heroes, and for you to collect all that and then just after so many years say this is something people need to know you would have rather made this film and toured him around with you so he could speak at the premieres and all this and you know it, here he's passed and now you're doing it posthumously or or whatever first and foremost like i explained you know multiple times he was an inspiration to me Obviously, I'm not alone. His story, you know, it's it's not about the war. It's about him. It's about how he overcame the most unimaginable obstacles and still live a, you know, a beautiful life. You know, my goals when starting this film was to, you know, to introduce Charlie to as many people as possible and share his inspirational story. I also think it was important that it shows the effects of war on a personal level. All of us, you know, Nathan included, were too young to remember what Vietnam was all about. And we're going to lose those stories. We're going to lose them quick, fast, and in a hurry, as my dad always says. We got to keep those at the forefront. And by you making this film, you're sharing some of these stories. I mean, my father-in-law fought in the Vietnam War. And I guarantee you, my father-in-law would probably watch this film, probably by himself, and not tell anybody that he watched it and not want to talk about it. Because I've had many beers with my father-in-law, and he will leak out a little bit about Vietnam, but is very still guarded about what happened. He was drafted and all that stuff. You know, he didn't want to go anything like that. And every once in a while I get that little piece out of him. And then you kind of see a different aspect about him. And there's so much about this story that people need to know. I mean, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story with all that said, how can people see the film? 
can can they see the film yet it, or do we have to wait until the film festivals or it, you know most of us and of course if the wolf was sitting here he'd say well i'll find it on the pirate network and you know i'll just download it and so nobody makes any money off of it because we joke about that all the time but you know how can people find out more about the film and watch the film and all that good stuff so currently as we discussed the film is currently entered in several film festivals many of which require that it's not premiered in their area right because of that i've been very careful about not releasing it you know of course you release it online it's released worldwide so technically is not released yet i invite your listeners to definitely follow waterboo.com i'm on facebook instagram i'm keeping all the updates on facebook and uh, instagram as far as how the festivals go and once, once the festival journey is finished, I'll have more information on the actual release of the film. So do you plan on here in the DFW Metroplex of having kind of a release party, so to speak, you know, where you rent out a theater and you invite people and they can go see it? Have, have you thought about that in the back of your mind? Absolutely. With most of these film festivals, private viewings are okay. So it's definitely been in discussion. Nothing has been set in stone. You know, the best way to learn about that, again, is, uh, you know, getting online, waterboo.com, Facebook, Instagram. Facebook and Instagram are both Waterboo Movie. Following those sites and any updates as far as private viewings or showings like that would definitely be promoted through those sites. Very cool. Well, Jeremy, Nathan... I certainly appreciate y'all showing up and uh, being with me on today's episode. It's It's been enlightening. It's a very powerful message. So, Jeremy, Nathan, thank you for coming here. And with all that said, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd Podcast. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, thewolfandtheshepherd.com, to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes when you get a chance. Check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for additional content. Join us next time for another episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Ooh.